Well, good morning, TFA. Welcome back. We feel like we've been on a month-long journey. It's only 10 days, but felt a lot long, longer than that, didn't it, Brenda? I have to hand it to my wife. We don't do much cross-training in our home. We have a really nice treadmill in our bedroom. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's, it's beautiful, isn't it, Brenda? And uh, for some reason, we have an allergy to it. I don't know. But we actually walked down one of the trails a little ways at the Grand Canyon. And I, I'd ask her, are you okay? Yep. I said, you know, it's going to be harder going back up. Yep. And she went way further than I thought she would uh, be willing to and made it back up there. And we we're, we're on it. I said, man, that's a tough lady sitting over there. But we are glad to be back. It was at the General Council of the Sims of God in Anaheim, California. The last time we were there was in 1983. It was our first General Council as a family. Jason was eight. Kelly was three. And we lost Jason while we were there. So uh, we, I don't even know if I remember anything else other than losing Jason. Yeah, I think it was so traumatic for us. I do remember that... Uh, Jim Baker preached there from PTL Club, so some of you might remember him. But uh, it's a long story. I'm not going to get into it. We did find him. Obviously, we found him. And uh, they, they said in error that I had lost him. And I had not lost him. The assemblies of God lost him. I delivered him where he was supposed to be, and he wasn't there when I went to pick him up, so... It was them who lost him. And I'm still part of the fellowship. How about that? I want, to, I want you to consider something with me on the life of Jesus. Boy, what a great chorus, great song. I added a word, by the way, on you are good. I'll tell you what that word is in just a moment. But uh, I thought about that. People will let you down. It doesn't matter who it is. It could be your best friend. You know, they just kind of don't come through at some point. You know, that's going to happen because we're mortals. But he never falters to take us to where we need to be. And when we have a problem, it's not on his end, it's on our end. Is it not? So I'm going to, I don't know if you've ever heard the poem or read the poem, One Solitary Life. Are you familiar with that? Well, that's going to kind of like be an intro in what I'm going to share. I'm going to be sharing from Matthew chapter 8, so if you want to turn there. But uh, Shane, I want the first slide to be that one solitary life. And uh, this, this came to my mind as I was thinking about what to preach on. And, and this, is, this is not exactly the title. Down at the bottom, it's, it's, its authorship is unknown. There's been different people who kind of dressed it up and... And, uh, you know, but when it's something by unknown, you just kind of have the liberty to change it. But I want you to just read it along with me. One solitary life, he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpentry shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. When the tide, that popular opinion, turned against him, his friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies He was tried and convicted. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave. He never wrote a book, never held an office, 
never owned a home, never went to college, never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompanies greatness. Yet all the armies that ever marched and all the governments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned had not affected life upon this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. Now, he may have lived a solitary life, but he did not live an ordinary life. We might can say to the age of 30, he might have lived an ordinary life. In obscurity, we don't know anything about those 30 years except that little blurb when he was 12 years of age and he was accidentally lost by his family in Jerusalem for three days. But when he gets to 30, everything picks up. So what kind of word would you describe the three years of ministry with Jesus? When you read the Gospels, what is, if you had just one word as an adjective to say he, instead of solitary life, he lived one descriptive life, what would that word be? Well, I'm going to offer you a word. If you're not going to offer a word, I'll offer you a word. And by the way, when we were singing, you are good, you're good, I was, I was singing, you are radically good, radically good. Oh, see, that, that doesn't even fit the notes, does it? But I was enjoying singing it because I'm preaching on one radical life. Now, that word has some negative connotations because when you hear of Islamic terrorists, they use the word radicalize, right? But I want you to see the definition of radical, and you'll see that it fully describes this. There's a, a noun for radical. Uh, radicals are what well, atoms within the act as the same unit in, you know, I'm in science, so this is not my area of expertise. But that word, that word is also used in science. But look at the definition of radical. It's um, especially of change or action relating to or affecting the true fundamental nature of something far-reaching or thorough. And look at especially of change or action. Was Jesus radical in bringing about change and action? You see how that describes him. He lived a radical life. Part of one of the quotations I'm going to show you from G.K. Chesterton fits within this radical nature. This was a a quotation that uh, Greg Mundus, over the world missions of the Sims of God, used this quotation and it jumped out to me. The more... This is Chesterton's view. The more I considered Christianity, the more I found that while it had established rule and order, change and order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. You know, we even sing a song of here, Furious. And I wonder if we really think in everyday life that that's the Lord. Here's, here's my take on this before we get into Matthew 8. It's almost like we make Jesus to look more like our lives instead of letting him make us to look more like his life. And if we're not careful, we temper down 
the greatness of the Lord. His involvement in our life, not, on, not just Sunday, but every day. I was talking, in fact, you know, how great is God? Some of you might not even know this, but Josh Ellen had a motorcycle accident yesterday on McFarland. And uh, the greatness of God that just protected him. And just earlier in the day, that day, yesterday, he was in his office and I came here to do some work and we were talking and I was telling him about Barcelona. I was talking to him about Barcelona and, and what happened in Barcelona. And some of you might remember a few years ago, uh, Vanina and Andres Gerhardt. You remember them from Argentina? They came here. They were thinking about launching an Hispanic church here in Tuscaloosa. Well, they're involved in the Sims of God in Argentina. But I knew that Vanina was from Spain and she sent me a note. Or I think it was even on Facebook. She said, my parents live in Barcelona. We've been in that street that the terrorist attack took place many, many times. But they were away on vacation. And as, as Josh and I was talking about that, I was saying one of the things that God has really burned in me is to pray for our awakening in Europe. A spiritual breakthrough in Europe. Europe was the seat of great teachers and theologians. You just think this is the this year will be the 500th anniversary that a Catholic priest nailed five, 95 objections and statements on a castle door, and it became famous as the birth of the Protestant Reformation. This would be 500 years. That was Martin Luther in Germany standing up to the rigidness in the in and what was going on in his, in his own church. And all these people, it was alive with reformation, with uh, passion. And this is what I said to, to Josh. These people took what some people made as a system and an institution and said, no, 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 no. You can experience Jesus every day. You don't have to just go to mass and that's your fix for the week. These people had an experience with Jesus and it was those people that looked to be a threat to the, the institution of that day. You have, you have within your grasp every day an encounter with the Lord. You have before you this incredible interaction with Jesus himself to where it would be a tragedy if we just lived a bland life. An ordinary life. We should live anything but an ordinary life. And when you get to, to Matthew 8, you'll see that Jesus didn't come for you and I to have an okay life. Free from some problems and just, you know, every now and then you had this encounter with him. That's not what he came for. I want to take you to Matthew chapter 8. Because Jesus came to make change. I was, uh, before I read this, I, I was standing in the aisleway of the plane when we landed Friday around 1 o'clock in Atlanta from Phoenix. And you know there's a, there's a courtesy when you fly, some of you that flies, that when, you, when the plane ends, that's when you're supposed to stop, that's when you're supposed to get up, right? And you start getting your stuff. Well, I'm all about rules, aren't I, Brenda? I'm about rules, etiquette. And so I got in the aisle, and I saw somebody come flying up the aisle. 
toward us, flying by the people he was supposed to wait for. So I didn't, I didn't become sure. Of, I was just in the aisle. And here we are face to face. Young man in his 20s. And I said, hey, how you doing? <laughs> I'm fine. I said, you're from here? Yes. And I was just talking. And I said, uh, and he says, my, I, I'm John. I says, I'm Charles. I got a brother named John. And we just got to talking. Of course, I didn't say you were rude, but no, I didn't say that. But we was just talking. And I said, uh, so are you in college? No, I dropped out. I said, what do you want to do with your life? And you, I, I have a plan where I'm getting at. And he says, uh, I, want a, I want a career in music. I said, so you play an instrument? He said, acoustical guitar. I said, well, that's, that's great. I love that kind of sound. And he said, but I want, I want to go into voice. I want, to, I want to be a singer. And in my mind, I'm thinking, and one other million people want to do that. But I was like, okay. I said, but where is Jesus in your life? And it was just in that shifting gears. Where is Jesus in your life? Oh, he's a, he's a part of my life. My dad's a preacher. He's, he's a part of my life. And I looked at him. I said, you know that he did, died a horrible death on the cross. And he rose again. What kind of life do you think he meant for you to have when he resorted to that kind of extreme sacrifice uh, a, a good life I said yeah a great life and this is, this is I think what's problematic in America we can come on Sunday and that is our spirituality and we're okay with that and some people are okay with not even doing it occasionally and there's, there's very little that may happen between those times and that is not what Jesus came to do. He came to radically change our lives. And that we just don't have a casualness in our faith. That our faith should be dynamic. He should be correcting. He, he corrects me. And, and I need him to correct me. I need him to say, that's, a, that's, that's not the attitude I want you to have. And, in, and when he does that, the Holy Spirit will do that to you and you, you repent. Now, Matthew starts with some interesting things, especially in the ministry of Jesus. After his baptism, he does this Sermon on the Mount from chapter 8, 5 through 7. And in chapter 8, he starts on what happens after the Sermon on the Mount. Now, follow this with me this. Jesus came down from the mountainside. He just did the Sermon on the Mount. Large crowds followed him. And a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing... You can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing. Be clean. And immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone. Now that's not what an evangelist would do today. Could we have a photographer come up here and take a picture of this guy? He says, see that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. All right, follow the, with me this for a moment. I'm going to reference Leviticus 13 here. From what you just read, this leper is way out of line. He's way out of line. 
He is not supposed to approach anyone that's healthy. This vigorous examination, the priests of anyone that has a boil or a sore that looks like it might be the beginning of this malady called leprosy, the priest would examine the boil or the sore, and through his examination, he would determine, well, we're not sure yet, and maybe a week later, the guy's supposed to come back and examine it again. And it's kind of odd because uh, if, the, if the sore looks a certain way, and, you know, if you want to read a chapter in the Bible that makes you a little queasy, just read Leviticus 13. But he's examining the sore, and the sore looks a certain way. He may not still be determined to have leprosy, and he'll come back. And, and if he comes back and the sore is definitely leprosy, this is what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to move out from anyone that's healthy. He cannot live in the same house with anyone. In this family, he's supposed to live alone. It's in that scripture. He's supposed to live alone in Leviticus 13, 46. He shall be unclean all the days he has a sore. He shall be unclean. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. He can't even live in town. He's not supposed, in fact, it says he's supposed to tell people that are getting close to him and yell out, unclean, unclean, meaning I have leprosy. This is contagious. You've got to stay away from me. And when you see what happens in Matthew 8, th- th- this is completely out of order. He comes up to Jesus, and he not only approaches him, he kneels down in front of him, and he says, Lord, if, if you're willing, you can make me clean. The second unthinkable, you might have read this, but the second unthinkable thing that happens in this passage is this. Jesus reaches out and touches him before he heals him. You know, for some of us, says, you can stop right there. I'm going to speak a word, and I'm going to pray for healing. Stay right there. I'm (laughs) I'm going to pray for the Lord to heal you. But the man is right in front of him. This is, this is so radical. Jesus did this all the time. This is what frustrated the, the people in charge. He didn't do things their way. He did them in a radical way. He didn't tell this man, you're not, you know you're not supposed to approach me. It's in the Torah. You're supposed to stand over there and yell, unclean, unclean. But he didn't do any of that. He didn't, he didn't take the man to the Torah, did he? And show him the rules. He reaches out and he does what he's not supposed to do. He touches a man with a contagious disease. And get this. I wonder how long it had been before a healthy person, since a healthy person had touched this man. And for, I don't think many of us could handle isolation very well. Let alone not having anyone to simply hold your hand, touch you on the shoulder, shake your hand, or even embrace you. This is one of the great tragedies of the quarantine of leprosy and the people. They were were in their own commune. They were in a leprosy colony. They, they They only had each other, and they were the same malady, carrying the same disease, looking the same way. And if there's anything that that should stand out in our world today when we see the division 
and the chaos that's in our country is Jesus is the example that everybody is on an equal plane. Even people with a contagious disease that comes and approaches him. He didn't treat this man as lower caste or someone that, you know, really and truly he shouldn't be doing this. He reaches out and touches the man and says, I will be clean and immediately the leprosy leaves him. Now, this is the great balance. Jesus could have said to him, uh, listen, if you, if you will just take, this is the next location I'm going to be preaching. And if you'll just take this and kind of publish and testify to everybody, and we're going to have a big crowd. That's the way we would do it in modern America. But he tells him two things. He says, don't tell anyone this. But he takes him back to the Torah. It's not like he's stepping all over the Scripture and says, you know, the Scripture really doesn't apply to you. He's like saying, some of it applies to you and some of it I'm going to override. And I'm going to override this thing that you can't approach me and that I can't touch you. I'm going to heal you, but you need to go back to the priest as a testimony of what God has done for you. He tells him, this is the right thing to do, but we're not going to do the healing the way they think it ought to be done. We're, going to, we're just going to go over that. We're going to do this in a whole different way. Do you want me to come and heal him? That's the question later on in the chapter. I want to take you to Matthew 8, 5. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, and this is, I want you to think about the radical nature of what's going on here. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said, shall I come and heal him? Centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve you to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, what is radical about this? Well, it's radical because of a couple of things. Number one, this was a Roman centurion. This was an officer in the Roman army, the occupying force in Israel that everybody resented. And he was coming to Jesus on behalf of a paralyzed servant in his house. And what Jesus asked him, you won't see this, I don't think any other place in Scripture. Jesus asked a lot of people. He asked a blind man, what do you want me to do for you? He wanted him to articulate, I want you to heal me. I want my eyes to be open. But in this case, Jesus asked an unusual question. He says, do you want me to come to your house and heal him? He never says that to anybody. But of all people he said it to is a Roman centurion. The same kind of officer, when Peter had a vision that he was supposed to go to a centurion's home, what did Peter say? I don't associate with people like that. He's not only a Roman, he's a Gentile. And Jesus was actually inviting himself to this man's home. And everybody around was hearing a Jewish man willing to go into a Gentile, not just a Gentile's home, but a a Roman soldier's home. And he says, no, I'm not worthy. Isn't that interesting? I'm not worthy. I have authority here. I have authority over all these people. 
but I'm not worthy for you to come to my home. You see, Lord, I'm like you. I'm a man under, under authority. And I have people, when I tell them to do something, they're supposed to do it. So he is recognizing Jesus as the authority. This is so neat. He came to Jesus for his servant, but he didn't want Jesus to come to his home because he, it's not like they didn't keep a good house. You know, and they're like, you know, the missus is not going to want company, so can you just like, he didn't, it wasn't that. He says, I don't deserve for you to walk through my doorway. If you will just say the word, this is what this man said, if you just say the word, my suffering servant will be healed. You don't have to come. You have authority. Jesus turned, turned around and told him, I haven't heard this much faith in all of Israel. And it would be okay if he just went ahead and said, okay, your servant is well. He went on and said this, They'll come from the east and the west into the kingdom of God to the gathering feast of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The heritage, the patriarchal heritage of the nation of Israel. He's talking about the nation of Israel. People in the nation of Israel will come from the east and the west for this great feast. But a lot of them are going to be thrown out and people like that man is going to sit at the table. I'm sure that went over really well with them. But he was commending him. And after he got through telling all the people that this is the kind of guy I'm looking to be a radical follower who doesn't need me to perform anything, just say the word. All you have to do is say the word and wherever he is, that word will be carried by the Holy Spirit and will heal my servant. And you know what Jesus said to him? Just as you have believed, He didn't even say, all right, in my name he's healed. He said, I know what kind of faith this man has, and according to what your faith. And it says his servant was healed from that very hour. I want you to drop down to later on in Matthew 8, and this is my last point. And this this is a great chapter, by the way. We see Jesus telling, this is one radical life, and you're about to see some of the most radical stuff that Jesus did. Jesus was telling the people, after he he talked to this guy, he turned to his disciples and says, let's get in the boat and let's go across to the other side. Now, what town is Jesus in? It's not a trivia question, it's there. Capernaum. He's in town, and and it's where he also healed Peter's mother-in-law. How about that, huh? And all that did was announce to everybody around there, says, hey, Peter's mother-in-law just got healed. And you know what kind of people they brought for Jesus to touch and heal and pray for? Demon-possessed people. How about that? And so they they crowded into that house that evening. They they brought demon-possessed people and sick people, and, and there was a great healing moment in Capernaum. After that, he turns to the disciples and says, let's get in the boat and let's go to the other side. Now, if you have a map, Capernaum is at the north core, uh, northwest part of the coast of the Sea of Galilee. And when he said, let's go to the other side, it could have been south where the present-day city of Tiberias is. It could have been 
to the west where Magdalene is, where Mary Magdalene was from, <laughs> but not east, not over there, because what was over in the east was not really a good place to dock your boat. It had a steep bank for a shoreline, and over there was a place called Decapolis, which means ten cities, and it was ten Gentile cities. And it doesn't say this, but I, I just think when they got in the boat and he said, let's go to the other side, and they, they had to ask, where? <laughs> over there. And I'm just, over there? <laughs> Are you serious? Uh, th- those, that's, that's crazy over there. That's a bad neighborhood, Lord. <laughs> that, that's dangerous over there. We, we hear all kinds of stuff about it. Surely you're, we're not going over there. It says, yeah, we're going there. And it's almost, it's almost as though that what happens next is to get them ready for what is going to happen later. Because no sooner they start row, rowing the boat toward the capitalist, a furious storm kicks up immediately, without any warning. And believe it or not, I've seen that happen at the Sea of Galilee in the 80s when my dad, I went with my dad to Israel. And we were up there and we were at the, uh, the uh, sanctuary of the loaves and fishes. It's, it's a, you know, they built churches where a lot of the neat things happen. And we were standing there and we were getting some refreshments from a vendor stand. And all of a sudden the wind kicked up. It was on a tour bus. And I remember saying to my dad, it's white capping out on the Sea of Galilee. Look at, look at that. This was a, a sea down in the middle of, of a mountain range, and it had waves white capping. And this was kind of like, I, after I read this, I said, well, that's what happened. And so this, this is what's radical to me. <laughs> this boat is about to sink, and what is Jesus doing? He's sleeping. He is napping. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I just find that humorous. I've lived twice the life in years that Jesus. So you can just multiply, you know. And yet only three years did he live doing ministry. And he, he had such a mission, you see, what we would have done, we would have been like hyperactive. I got three years. I got three years minus a day. I got three years minus a week. And and for us, we would have just like, oh, we need to do as much as we can in three years. And he's sleeping. I love it. And he's sleeping so hard, the waves aren't waking him. The commotion of them bailing water is not waking him. They finally, as, as it looks like the boat is going to sink, they finally yell out, Lord, save us. We are drowning. We're about to drown here. And, you know, I think this is so comical. He gets up and, you know, I'm just seeing the water's dripping off their face, their beard, and they're exhausted. <laughs> he says... Why do you have such little faith? <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think in their mind that they thought he was going to jump up 
and start saying, be still. I think that says, we could use one more person out here to bail water. <laughs> I think that's what they meant. It's like, hey, we're drowning and you're sleeping. This is not good. They were like in their world. They were in their world of survival. And isn't that like us? We get in our world of survival and we can only trust the things that we can do and ask God to do what we're doing instead of him doing what he can do. And after Jesus tells him, man, I'm just surprised you have no faith here, so little faith, he says to the wind, and he, he rebukes him. I think that's the language. He rebukes, and then he, he rebuked the wind and the waves, and it all stopped. And it's like, wow, what kind of, what kind of guy is this? That's why they said, what kind, what kind of person just did what he did? It's because what they were about to see was a lot bigger than what they just saw. Because as soon as they landed on that shore in that neighborhood, two people, two men who lived in a cemetery come running down that bank at them, you know, uh, back in the early 90s, we took a team when I was in Jackson to Argentina to Ron and Terry Pitts. And they were, they were over a project in Buenos Aires, Argentina, outside of the city proper, but it's such a huge metropolitan area. And they had launched a church in this area of Buenos Aires that was launched in a tent and they were building a building that would seat 450 people because this church was going to be the hub of launching other churches. And Pastor Moises Berrientos had came from uh, Peru to pastor, a great man. In fact, he's still the pastor there, and, and he and I are friends on Facebook. And true to the, what their vision was, that church was supposed to be a mother church, and they have launched churches all over that region. But when they... When they told the police they wanted to take that tent into such and such area, the police said to them, we strongly advise you not to do that. We don't even patrol that. We will not give you protection. That is a dangerous place. We don't even go in there. It's full of drugs. It's full of darkness. It's dangerous. Do not go in there. But they felt that God had spoken to them that that area of Buenos Aires needed a witness of the gospel. For six weeks, they had an evangelistic service every night. And Ron said, every night, without, without an exception, there was at least one person in that came to that service that manifested demonic possession. So they had a little area back in that tent with a white curtain, and that was the deliverance room. <laughs> and when they would start manifesting, they had some people to pick them up and take them back into that room and stay there until they cast demons out of them. And he was telling our team that that didn't happen all the time now because the church was up to about 250 people with only one family being part of the launch. That was believers. The rest of the people had been converted. Gang members, drug addicts, families, 250 people. And 98% of them had came in through that six-week revival. And now they were built. 
But he was, <laughs> he was telling our team, Brenda, if I met, uh, said his name, you'd know he, he owned the motel there. Okay. When he was telling us about demonic possession, there's a couple of our team members I thought was just going to go back to the room. And he says, don't worry about it. We got people uh, that, that know how to handle demonic possession. And, and they were, two of them was looking around at me and looking at him like, oh, I didn't sign up for this. I signed up to lay brick. <laughs> I came here to work on a building. I didn't come here to do hand-to-hand combat with demons. And, and the one I'm referring to asked me later, says, uh, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable <laughs> with, with demons coming out of people, and I'm right there around them. I says, I'm not, I almost called his name. I said, listen, the blood of Jesus is our covering. Our confidence is not, in our, our, is not our covering. Our confidence is in his covering over us. And you don't have to worry about them. You don't have to worry about any demonic manifestation at all. The Lord's power is going to take care of it. And I say that because what happened next is that these demons, listen, this is a radical life that Jesus is living. It is extreme change. An extreme change is about to happen. The definition that was radical, this is about to, to show that everything about Jesus was not casual or ordinary. He lived a radical life And he did radical things. He had radical change take place in people. And these two guys come flying down at them. I I just see the disciples maybe getting back in the boat. But they came and they, they cowered down to Jesus. What do you want to do with us, son of God? Look at the things these demons knew. They knew who he was. They might not have known any of the names of the 12 disciples, and that was probably okay with them. But they knew who Jesus was. And then they said something so interesting. Have you come to torture us before the appointed time? They knew not only that he's a son of God, they knew who he was before Mary conceived the incarnate Savior. They knew who he was. And they knew the man that was standing on their shoreline was the Son of God, and they're begging him. Now, listen, if, if, there's, if there's people that scare you with darkness, I'm telling you, darkness is more afraid of light. Darkness, darkness fears light. And these demons who had terrorized the whole area, you can just read it, that they were so People were so frightened, they just avoided that. Don't go over there. That's a cemetery those two crazy people live in. You know, they'll attack you. They're, they're, just don't go there. And here they run down, and they're cowering down to Jesus because they recognize the authority of him and says, if you come to torture us. And now we know later that Jesus, they ask, uh, don't send us to where we could go into the abyss. Send us into the pigs. Now, that's being pretty desperate, is to want to be sent into pigs. Shane and I was talking about some of our electronics up there, and I said, you know what? If demons can be in pigs, there's a possibility 
that these light, this lighting console up there, they got in it this morning. Because all this wouldn't work this morning. And so Shane says, maybe we need a pig pen out in the back and we can just send. I have, I have cast demons out of certain cars that I had that I was sure that, that they got into my car. But how radical is this? How radical is what Jesus did? He says, okay, go. And they entered into the herd of swine. This is a Gentile area. You didn't find pig farmers on the other side of the, of the lake. And they, the pigs ran down into the Sea of Galilee and drowned. And when the people heard about it, they came and they, you know, it was one thing for them to know that the pigs all died, but when they saw the people that was delivered, in another gospel it, says, it just speaks of one of the two men. But when they saw these two men that were not containable, could not be restrained, sitting clothed and in their right minds, it scared them. Because Jesus had done something so radical, they weren't comfortable with him being there. And this is, this is really the, ju- the gist of what I'm sharing with you this morning, is this. What do you think is the life that he wants you to live? What, what do you think he came to do in your life? When he died and was raised again for you and me, I'll put it like this. It is what... Is what is going on in your life right now the fullness of what he came to do? Because, see, in my thinking, there's a lot more room for him to do more in our lives. There's a lot more room. I'm, I'm as excited about the person of Jesus in my life as I've ever been. Because it's like I told Josh. When people discovered that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And that relationship means you have an encounter with him, you know him, he knows you, you walk with him, your life is submitted to him, you're a surrendered vessel, you're wanting him to teach you, you're wanting him to speak to you. Just like the quote from G.K. Chesterton, you know, some of these people are kind of way up above my intellect, but I want to read. I want, I want them to challenge me. I want to think differently. And it's no doubt he wants good things to run wild in your life. He wants you to live an extraordinary life. Would you stand with me? And if the praise team, Jesus is that one solitary life. But he's also that one radical life. He does not save you to be, to make you ordinary. He saves us to be extreme examples of what he came to do.